Meet Nurakan and Yuge. They're what's called otaku, nerds or geeks obsessed with comic books and computers. They'd invited me to meet their girlfriends, both of whom come in a box. Nurakan and Yuge have been dating their virtual girlfriends for several years in a role-playing game called Love Plus. Do you believe that this is your girlfriend? Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Christopher Hayes, Research Associate at the Sainsbury Institute to discuss binaries of representation and Japan in the British media. Chris will share his insights on British travel shows that see TV personalities like Paul Hollywood or Sue Perkins travel the archipelago and reduce it to binary tropes such as traditional Japan and ultra-futuristic Japan, or traditional Japan and weird Japan. Chris also explains how Japan's own official tourism discourse is complicit in creating these narratives. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, first off, I'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, absolutely. So, I research the representation of Japan, um, how it is that people outside of Japan, um, specifically British people in the UK, how they understand Japan, how they perceive Japan, um, as opposed to many Japanese studies researchers who look at Japan itself. But for the vast majority of people, um, especially people in the UK who are so far away from Japan, really, as far as they're concerned, these understandings, these ideas that they have about Japan in their heads are, for them, Japan. It's as close to Japan as they're going to get. And the things that they read about Japan, the things that they see on TV about Japan, for them, that is Japan. And I did my PhD at Cardiff University. And there I focused on British press representation of Japan. And in particular, I was interested in um, one common theme in articles about Japan, and that being technology, how Japan is often um, considered in terms of its relationship with technology. And in particular, a kind of dichotomy that I found was coming up quite frequently when I was doing my research. And that's something that I've continued to have an interest in ever since and something that um, I'd like to talk about today. And that's this idea that Japan is at once both locked in the past, being incredibly traditional and low tech, and at the same time being incredibly technologically advanced, sometimes to the point that it's considered futuristic and with that, you can think of things like robots and this almost Blade Runner idea of Japan and the neon lights. And so that was really what my PhD was looking at, trying to untangle how it is that these two perceptions coexisted. And one of the things that I found was that quite often previous research looked at articles and was dismissive of them, was critical and said, well, the author clearly doesn't understand Japan. While that may be the case in some instances, very often 
articles in major British newspapers or news websites are written by people based in Japan, correspondents or freelancers who have lived in Japan for many years and know the country intimately. And so my research was more focused on, well, if that's the case, why is it that we have these ideas? And what I found in my research was really it comes down to sort of the journalistic system and the pressures that the profession is under that leads to, um, how could I put it, that leads to a demand for content that's entertaining, regardless of whether or not it is totally accurate. And so since my PhD, I've continued to look at these representations and their accuracy. Hmm. I see, it's interesting. It's uh, curious how entertainment is affecting people's notions of a, a real world nation. I mean, you mentioned Blade Runner earlier, which is obviously a total fantasy. Now you suggest that that's influenced how people will see Japan. I mean, how does that work? Um, well, Blade Runner, the imagery in the film is very much influenced by Japan. At the time, in the 80s, Japan was seen as being the future. Perhaps we can get onto this in a little bit, but at that time, Japan was everywhere in sort of the global imaginary. It was dominating industry and technology, and it was an economic powerhouse. And it was seen as just this thing that would keep growing. So when imagining the future, people had this idea that in a future globalized world, it would actually be a Japanized world, which is why you find in these representations in the 1980s of the future, it is very much an Japan-inspired, or at the very least Asia-inspired future in terms of visuals. And I don't think that ever went away. Japan continues to be seen as futuristic by many. And that idea of the neon, of the high-rise buildings, continues for many people to be that idea of the future. And even today, when you look at um, television programs set in the future or video games, so things like Black Mirror or recent video games like um, Cyberpunk 2077, they continue to use that very much Japan-inspired image of the future. That hasn't gone away. And I think that's why people do associate Japan with these fictionalized futures. I see. Fascinating. Now, while this podcast enjoys a global audience, I'm sure that most are aware of such stereotypical images of Japan as Shinto shrines and geisha presenting the traditional on the one hand and bullet trains and robots presenting the futuristic on the other. Before we get into representations of Japan in the British media, could you give us an idea of how Western imaginings of Japan had developed following the Second World War? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Second World War is an incredibly important turning point. The war, as you know, that was the defeat of Japan, and it was a catastrophic defeat. The devastation wrought by the Second World War, if you think about the bombings and the loss of life, in many cases, cities razed to the ground. Japan was a defeated nation. It was a lost nation. And it became an occupied nation. You had um, the US military occupy parts of it. The US government wrote the Japanese constitution. And so in the 1940s and early 1950s, Japan was seen as that. It was no longer the enemy. It was this defeated power. It had gone from being this 
imperial threat to being nothing really. But then the 1964 Olympics came round and Tokyo was hosting. And it was the first Summer Olympics that was televised globally live. And for these Olympics, the Japanese government completely overhauled Tokyo and its infrastructure. And in the build up to it, made huge advancements in sort of infrastructural technologies, such as the bullet train, the Shinkansen, which has become this very iconic symbol of Japan. And the Shinkansen was launched for the 1964 Olympics. One of the first train journeys was exclusively for the journalists to take them to the city. And so for these journalists who'd come to Japan to report on the Olympics, one of the first things they got to experience was riding on the world's fastest train, this revolutionary form of transport. And then they arrive in Tokyo to find this gleaming new city, which had been completely overhauled with new subway networks, road networks, new buildings, which really was to showcase Japan rising from the ashes like a phoenix. And this completely changed people's ideas of Japan. And it just went from there because Japanese companies really started accelerating and becoming more dominating. And that is when we start seeing this idea of Japan as the future, that these Japanese companies were actually advancing much quicker than we would have expected, to the extent that they started creeping into the West, particularly into America, where America had traditionally dominated large business. If you think of the 1988 film Die Hard, although we never see them, looming in the background is this idea of Japanese corporate power. The entire film takes place in the Nakatomi Plaza building, which stands in for this might and economic power of Japan. And there was actually a lot of concern in America in particular about this rise of Japan and about this threat of Japan. Um, in 1989, Sony acquired Columbia Pictures. And this was met with outcry by many people and newspapers ran headlines about a Japanese invasion because Columbia Pictures symbolized Hollywood, this golden American institution. And it was being bought up by the Japanese. And there was a lot of pushback against this. And throughout the 80s, you had this phenomenon of what's called Japan bashing, really laying into the Japanese um, and seeing them as this big threat, the enemy once again. And a lot of the imagery during this time did harken back to the Second World War, particularly in America and that sort of Pacific arena of war. Norel Morris has written a book on this Japan bashing and how it rose and then eventually fell. And although this was taking place in America through globalization and Americanization, these images trickled down to the UK as well. We were watching American films, consuming American media. So the American understandings of Japan were coming to the UK. Now, of course, more recently, I'd say that for many people, the image of Japan has been heavily influenced by popular culture, by anime and manga. And in the UK, that has been more of a subculture. 
Whereas in, say, European countries, France, Italy, Germany, where actually these forms of media enjoyed mainstream success, it was more than possible to buy manga in any bookshop. It was possible to watch anime during the day on any television channel. In the UK, it was much more of a niche thing and was actually, again, seen as a bit of a threat. That it was seen as this aggressive, perverse media. The cartoons were seen as violent and explicit and too graphic. I mean, even some American cartoons couldn't make it into the UK in their, in their original forms. Um, famously, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the UK became the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. <laughs> you couldn't use a term like ninja in the UK. And again, maybe that says something about this idea of Japan that had formed. Um, but it has softened since then, and Japan has continued to be defined by more popular culture and also its food culture, the globalization of sushi and ramen, and then the rise of chains in the UK, such as Yosushi and Wagamama have meant that Japan has been a lot more visible in the UK than it has in the past. But it's, again, only these popular forms. In the UK, I wouldn't say that we've... It's very common to have an understanding of, say, Japanese history or Japanese literature. Those haven't quite made it. Um, so it's very much defined by these sort of very visual forms. I see. Just to go back briefly to your mention of how uh, Japanese businesses were seen as the future, because we're talking about binaries of representation, I'm aware that many people tried to explain the success of Japanese business in this time period. That many of the salarymen were following the readings of Musashi Miyamoto, the uh, samurai, and his philosophy of the five rings. And so it seems interesting how these supposedly futuristic leading businesses claim their success comes from readings from several centuries ago. Uh, is, how does that reconcile? Absolutely. And I, I'm not sure we can say it does reconcile. It's a contradiction that just is and Japan appears to be a contradiction in our sort of Western or British perceptions. So as you say, Japanese business is seen as very far ahead, very futuristic, but supposedly underpinned by very traditional practices. Salarymen are often compared with samurai, that they follow the Bushido code. And it is this juxtaposition, this contradiction in terms that I'm very interested in, how it is simultaneously one and the other. Japan is incredibly futuristic, but at the same time, it's underpinned by ancient practices. And what I think is really missing, and it's something that I sort of brought out in my PhD, is that we focus on the extremes. We never look at what's in between those extremes. So going back to my PhD and looking at these news articles, one of the things I found was there was a period when British news sources were writing about how Japan was obsessed with fax machines, how offices across Japan often didn't even have computers. They just had fax machines and they did everything via fax machines. And the explanations 
in these articles were often that it was because of their highly traditional culture that was rooted in everything being done by consensus, actually having to take the documents by hand, in two hands no less, to your superior, bowing before them and getting them stamped. And that it's all to do with the hierarchies and it's all to do with the importance of having physical media. And yet, when I actually went out to Japan, I did a survey of Japanese companies and visited about 10 Japanese companies across a range of different industries and different sizes. And what I found was that in almost all cases, there was a fax machine, but it's not, it wasn't the only thing. Everyone had a computer and the fax machine was actually just a multifunction printer that had a fax function. Now, people use fax machines and they probably use them on a daily basis, but not because of this great cultural reason, this deeply ingrained tradition, but because of practicality. Because sometimes there were documents that were considered sensitive that you couldn't send by email because an email has to be transmitted online through several servers and there's a chance of it being intercepted on the way. Whereas a fax machine, in theory, is a direct connection between two phone lines. So a document going through one end will come out the other with no interference and no meddling. So you know that what you get coming out the other end is a direct facsimile of the original document. And so banks, hospitals, um, law firms, and so on, require things to be faxed. But actually, on an everyday basis, companies will happily use email. They prefer email. It's a lot easier. It's a lot quicker. But that context isn't interesting for a news article. When it comes to writing an article, the editor, their main concern is putting out something that will sell papers or will generate clicks online. And so the headline Japan uses faxes is a lot more interesting than Japan sometimes uses fax machines when it's practical, but probably uses email more, which is the more <laughs> realistic case. And actually, the fact is, you'd be surprised how often faxes have been used in the UK up until very recently. Even the NHS still uses faxing for that same reason as it's done in Japan. And when I was talking to journalists in Japan, they expressed a deep frustration with this, that they knew that this stuff was exaggerated, that it was lacking context, it was lacking explanation. But if they wanted to make money, because they often weren't on a full-time contract, they were paid by the article. If they wanted to actually earn an income, they kind of had to do what the editor said. So if the editor said, go write an article about robots, they had to go write an article about robots. And there was one journalist who I spoke to who said that he tried, whenever possible, he tries to add some context, to add some nuance. And so when he went and looked at some robots, he actually wrote that they were a bit disappointing. They're actually just still in their research phase, that we're a long way off having robots in everyday life. And it just got sent back to him by the editor who said, that's not what we're looking for. We want crazy <laughs> robots that are going to be entertaining. And that's kind of the problem that we only want to see Japan in these extremes 
because the middle bit, the everyday Japan, the normal everyday experiences of people, they're just not interesting, at least from the perspective of the news media or the television producer who's got to put together a 45-minute TV program that's going to pull in millions of viewers. See, so again, we're seeing the uh, issue of entertainment versus information, I guess. Absolutely. This goes on to the next question quite nicely. So in your article, you point out the contradictory nature of the stereotypes associated with Japan, beginning with Ruth Benedict's famous anthropological study, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword from 1946, which depicts Japanese as both savage and civilized at the same time. While this kind of colonialist thought is thankfully no longer the mainstream discourse, this binary nature of stereotypes has persisted, as mentioned earlier, with traditional and futuristic Japan. Is this a sign that Orientalism, or the othering of Asian peoples, continues to persist today? Absolutely. Whether it's over Orientalism is another question, um, but certainly othering. And I think othering is a process that is very inherent to human beings, that we have our in-groups and our out-groups, that we have this concept of self and other, and that we naturally um, consider our worldview in these ways. Um, But in terms of these specific ways of representing Japan, I think it very much persists today. And looking at Orientalism in particular, the characterization of Japan as being deviant, as being inferior, as being totally incomprehensible is very much alive. And we see that in the kinds of TV programs that feature on say the BBC or Channel 4, or even in films, you know, you have films such as Coppola's lost in translation, in which Japan is effectively a setting for the two protagonists' respective crises and feeling lost. And where better is there to be lost than in Japan, in Tokyo, which is seen as being totally beyond comprehension. There's no way you could understand it, no way you could understand this culture. And really, Japan is just, it is just a backdrop. It is, in some ways, it's a metaphor for what these characters are going through. It's not a real place. And turning to Ruth Benedict, these ideas about Japan being both savage and civilized predate the books, almost certainly. I mean, even in the 19th century, that's how we were seeing Japan. And we were seeing... Japan as these extremes and people were some people were aware that this wasn't the case Oscar Wilde famously said that this Japan doesn't exist that the regular Japanese is probably just like us but the popular image of Japan was this exaggerated form and what the chrysanthemum and the sword did was effectively codify this dichotomy it put it into writing Um, in an academic way and it's probably had the biggest reach of any sort of output similar output um, with 
over 2 million copies sold since published, and it's been very successful in Japan too. Um, it's been translated into Japanese several times, and it continues to be successful there because although it is setting up this sort of othering of Japan, this orientalizing of Japan, what it also does is set up this idea of Japanese distinctiveness. That's something we can talk about a bit later. And it sets up Japan as being so different to anywhere else. And that's actually something that many Japanese over time have grabbed onto and actually exploited. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that the chrysanthemum and the sword is still so popular. I mean, even though that Ruth Benedict hadn't been to Japan in, during that time, she was employed by the US Army to get a good psychological analysis of the Japanese as an enemy as well. So it's, it's so many layers going on there. Um, perhaps we can do another episode about that <laughs> another time. No, definitely. Um, it is a fascinating yeah. book and the context in which it was written. And I think a lot of that has been lost. People read it without knowing these contexts, um, especially in Japan. Yeah. So to come back to uh, good old Britain, I'm sure you must have watched your fair share of British TV on Japan in your research, which give completely different images of Japan. For example, in one moment you'll have an episode on sexless in Japan, and another will be on young sex in Japan. So could you share with us some of your favourite examples of these kind of contradictions? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, oh, it's, it's just so many, and you don't know where to begin I mean, not necessarily on TV, but just going back to my PhD, that the, the very premise of this dichotomy, and I was looking at the Japan that uses fax machines and fax machines only versus the Japan that's so far in the future, everyone has a robot. <laughs> and this belief in robots in Japan is so ingrained in our, or at least in common British understandings of Japan, that in 2011, when we had the Fukushima triple disaster, several newspapers in the UK were shocked to discover that Japan wasn't sending in its robots to deal with the disaster. <laughs> there was this genuine idea that, oh, Japan will be fine. They've got robots. They can deal with it. They've got that wow. Asimo one or whatever. So, yeah, there is this huge disconnect. Um, and yeah, the contradictions as well. And I think, yeah, those are really good examples that you brought up about you've got sexless, sexless in Japan and then young sex in Japan. So which is it? Is there, are they sexless or are they having sex? I think these programs are continually shifting from this great reverence and respect for traditional Japan to um, perhaps overt criticism or bafflement and bemusement of other aspects. And a lot of that comes down to focusing on particular areas. One of the things that these programs will always do is they'll take a trip to Akihabara in Tokyo and they will characterize this almost as if a, it's a typical Japanese neighborhood. Even mm. though anyone who's been to Japan and been to Tokyo knows that Akihabara is by no means typical. Um, I remember in some, it was around 2011, maybe 2012, there was a BBC documentary, No Sex Please, with Japanese. Again, this idea that the Japanese don't have sex, despite the fact that other programs 
will take you to the love hotels where the Japanese go to have sex. So again, which, what are they? Are they not having sex, or are they having sex? And one of the things they do in this program is that they go to Akihabara, and they meet two otaku, two nerds, I guess you could call them, who they interview in a dark apartment. No particular explanation why they're in a dark apartment, but the two men are fans of a Nintendo DS. Dating sim, and their fascination with this game, where they play a character in the game where they're dating a high school girl, is used to explain why the entire Japanese population is shrinking. That men aren't procreating with women because they're too obsessed playing dating sim games,、um, and. It's just absurd, really, but I guess the problem is that it's presented as being the norm rather than actually highlighted that no, these are two very, very specific cases in a very particular area of Japan, that or very particular area of Tokyo that is known for being a bit, a bit quirky.、Yeah. So. Yeah, I think with these programs that they they focus on very small sections of Japan. They very much hone in on they hone in on a very small aspect of Japanese contemporary society, and then they blow it up to be representative of the entire country. Definitely, I, I remember watching that program a, a few years ago, and I was I think what. what Struck me most was how the interviewer, the BBC interviewer, I remember her stepping into a Japanese man's home and saying, "Oh, it's my first time being inside a Japanese house," and、uh, she didn't speak any Japanese. It seemed that she didn't really have any knowledge of Japan, and it just struck me that this was their choice of someone to <laughs> explain such a huge issue as Japan's depopulation problem.、Uh, but to go on to the next question, something I'm curious about. Is how in a number of BBC or Channel Four documentaries on Japan, you'll get TV personalities with no prior connection to or knowledge of Japan, such as Paul Hollywood, Stacey Dooley, and Sue Perkins, who are shipped over there to comment on just about everything. You and I know that there is a great number of Japan specialists in the UK who would be much more eloquent and sensitive in handling these issues. So, why do you think there's, there's this trend with sending out people with no idea about the country or language to report on it? Yeah, absolutely.、Um, we've already touched on this a little bit, but I think it's an important thing to recognise that, with the exception of the Stacey Dooley program, these aren't really documentaries at all. They are entertainment programs first and foremost. And while there's an informative aspect to them, their main function is to entertain. The host is also part of the draw, if not the main reason for people watching. In many ways, Japan is just a backdrop for these personalities. This, of course, can be problematic, as when you put a comedian like Sue Perkins in Japan, she's looking for opportunities for comedy. Moreover, as entertainment, it's understandable that the producers will want to put the personalities in situations that will offer the potential for comedy or drama. Things such as maid cafes, teenage pop concerts, and Go karting through Tokyo offer just this, even if they're not representative of Japan as a whole. 
I suppose there's an issue that there is thus a lack of serious documentaries about Japan in the UK. And perhaps it's indicative of the levels of national interest in Japan. While a documentary hosted by an expert would at least be more nuanced and show a more informed, informed side of Japan, would it actually draw in the viewers? And I think that's the issue. On the other hand, the things shown in the programme are real. They do exist. And so the go-karting through Tokyo is a real thing. A restaurant where you can catch your own fish is a real thing. Maid cafes, cat cafes and so on are very much real. And even if they're, and even if they're not commonplace, they are real. And I think that's one of, as I was saying, they kind of zoom in on these small, small aspects of society and blow them up to be much larger than they are. Um, and it is problematic. Um, I suppose we can see on the flip side as well that we can try to look for positives in these. Um, so perhaps we could see these programs as acting as gateways to Japan. They may spark interest in the country among the viewers, even if just a few of them who may then go away and want to learn more about Japan. But at the same time, to go back to the negatives, they do end up perpetuating the same ideas about Japan and these inaccurate ideas about Japan. Yeah, definitely. I do wonder, though, about your comments as to whether people would just wouldn't tune in if there was a, um, an expert on Japan presenting the TV show, because the, we are seeing more academic celebrities like Brian Cox, for example. So <laughs> I don't think that that would be a, a turn-off, perhaps, but maybe... Maybe it's more because uh, it would be more relatable to watch someone else who doesn't have any knowledge or experience of Japan to be experiencing it on your behalf, in a sense. Maybe that that could be yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another way to look at these programs is they're not documentaries. Um, they're not always focusing on a sole issue. The Stacey Dooley documentary does. Um, Stacey Dooley and her defence has made a career out of doing documentaries that explore similar themes. So you could say she's built up an expertise in the broad themes, such as trafficking, prostitution, child labour, and things like that. So there is a justification for her making her programme. Whereas the other ones, in many ways, they're travel programmes without necessarily trying to sell a trip. Um, you're really experiencing a visit to Japan through the eyes of a familiar television personality. And perhaps, as you say, you can put yourself in their shoes because they are familiar. Whereas if it were an academic, you wouldn't necessarily be able to put yourself into their shoes and experience Japan in the same way. And it wouldn't really be the same kind of experience of Japan. It would be much more informative. It would be a documentary. True. Well, if the BBC ever wants a, a fresh face on the show, they can always send us an email. So, <laughs> one trope you mentioned in your article is Weird Japan, where niche elements of society are focused on, portraying a small number of individuals as representative of the wider Japanese population. In an earlier episode, I looked at Nihonjinon, the idea of Japanese uniqueness, which until recently was a pervasive discourse in Japan. Have such discourses within Japan affected how the rest of the world reports on it? Certainly. I think you could quite easily say that's the case. Um, Nihon Jinron, the academic and often political discourse of 
Japanese national and cultural identity is firmly based in Japanese distinctiveness. Some form of Nihon Jinron has been around for as long as Japan has interacted with foreign powers. And it particularly began to escalate after the Meiji Restoration, when Japan opened up to the rest of the world, finding that it had been left behind in the Industrial Revolution. As you and your regular listeners know, the most recent phase of Nihon Jinron arose after the Second World War, following Japan's defeat. And as I said at the beginning of this podcast, this defeat, coupled with the sheer level of damage wrought by bombings and the loss of life through the war, was devastating to the Japanese people. And for a while, Japan was lost. It went from this imperial power to a defeated nation occupied by US forces. Germany was in very much the same position. The Japanese government was very proactive in constructing a new national identity, embedding this into school education. The new Japan arose and became an economic powerhouse while centered on this idea of its uniqueness, its difference to the West. Although it may use technologies and ideas imported from the West, they're applied in a uniquely Japanese way. This is the idea of wakon yosai, Japanese spirit and Western techniques. And abroad, this cultural distinctiveness of Japan has been accepted as an explanation for Japan's rise as an economic power. So as you were saying earlier, with these really successful businesses, it's rooted in their very traditional ideas and the salarymen embodying the samurai spirit and things like that. And considering the traditional Japan side, the images that we see in television programs are often of the temples, the shrines, the geisha and the samurai. And there's a strong awareness that these are appealing images. They sell internationally. International tourism is growing in Japan, at least it was until the pandemic. And the Japanese National Tourism Organization has been very deliberate and very savvy in its choice of imagery and narrative about Japan that it pushes to potential visitors. And at the same time, these images are highly appealing to Japanese nationals, Japanese tourists too, in similar ways to how perhaps we in the UK are drawn to heritage attractions or historical reenactment events in the UK, or how many countries in Europe continue to hold traditional festivals where attendees wear traditional national or regional dress. However, the image of Japan that is perpetuated to the Japanese is not something that I've done any research on, so I cannot claim to be an expert there. But I think it is fair to say that the Japanese government has very much taken hold of these ideas of what um, is a popular image of Japan and what um, is actually economically beneficial and what actually can improve them. Japan is very much a soft power focused nation. Um, had the Olympics gone ahead in 2020, as we would have hoped, I think we would have been seeing that a lot more. And um, it remains to be seen with 2021. But if you think that when you had the handover from the 2016 Olympics, the um, ceremony was themed around the video game Mario with um, the prime minister dressed as the Italian plumber. <laughs> and the international Olympic ambassadors are a selection of Japan's most famous manga and anime characters. So Japan is very aware of these, what are perceived as distinctive cultural elements that sell well and 
really sort of does use them to their advantage. Yeah, definitely. One image comes to mind as we're, as we're having this conversation, which is uh, it's from my year abroad in Kyoto. Um, whenever I'd be walking around Gion or the uh, Higashiyama district, where many of the tourists go to see the traditional buildings and cobbled streets, you often see far more non-Japanese in kimono than actual Japanese. <laughs> and that's it just uh, seems very interesting how uh, having that physical representation of this foreign idea of what Japan is to what actual Japan, everyday Japan is, is like, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. And yeah, I think if we think of these programs on television as being more like travel program, travel entertainment programs and being documentaries, we can see it as a almost simulated holiday. And they're very much performing the actions of a tourist. And when people go to Japan, they do what they think is expected of them as a tourist. They go to the same places, they do the same things. Um, most first time visitors to Japan do what's called the golden route, where they start in Tokyo, they make their way down to Kyoto, then they go to Osaka, and if they have time, they then go to Hiroshima. And it's just a straight line, basically. Um, and it's very convenient because you can just do that on the Tokaido Shinkansen, especially if mm -hmm. you've got a JR pass. Um, but it gives you a very closed view of what Japan is. If you think of Japan made up of hundreds, if not thousands of islands, yeah. that trip that most people take keeps you on one island and on one coastline <laughs> effectively. Yeah, I mean, no one even goes to Kyushu, and that's where all the best hot springs are, you know, so they're just missing out, to be honest. But may may maybe the best hot springs should be kept for the Japanese and those in the know. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. say that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not speaking on behalf of Japan by any means. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I, yeah, no, I, I totally agree that the people who you see in Kyoto, for example, which is one of the most popular tourism destinations, they all gather at the same site because that's just what's expected. It's what the guidebooks tell you to go visit. It's what the websites, you know, if you look up what to do in Kyoto, you'll get a list of the 10 places to visit and everyone will go to those 10 places, which is what's led to Kyoto experiencing what's called over-tourism, where it's not that it's actually got too many people, it's that it's got too many people in specific places. Um, despite the fact that Kyoto Prefecture has this high concentration of UNESCO World Heritage Sites and um, the prefecture as a whole has so many different towns and cities with these same sort of traditional aspects that people are desperate to see, the shrines and temples, but they just, people just gather at these same sites, which leads to a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. they want to go to the shrine, you know, uh, Shininari or the temple of Kimizadera, you know, yeah. Not that mm. they actually know anything about these places. They just read it in a book <laughs> that that's where they should go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can never go wrong going off the beaten path a bit. That's what I always say. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering all my questions, Chris. Uh, before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. So currently I am very interested in the Olympics. Prior research has shown that Japan really only features in the UK news when something is happening of global geopolitical relevance or it affects the UK. Um, otherwise, we can we occasionally see what are called feature stories, 
about weird and wonderful Japan, which is where these articles about fax machines and robots or no sex in Japan come from. And the Olympics promised to be this huge international event when the eyes of the world will be on Japan, much as the 1964 Olympics served to showcase a new Japan to the world. I was interested in what it might change about UK press depictions of Japan. Maybe this increased and intensified coverage of Japan might lead to an increased interest in the country and lead to a broader, more diverse representation. However, we now have the context of the COVID pandemic. And so I'm looking at how the handling of the Olympics during the pandemic will affect perceptions. I'm hosting a two-day workshop which may have already passed when this podcast goes to air, um, but that's on the 1st and 2nd of July. And that's looking at the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on Japan's sort of internationalization and sort of soft power efforts um, with a particular focus on the Olympics. So yeah, I'm very interested in how the pandemic will affect international perceptions of Japan. Another project that I hope to start in September um, assuming we can travel again, um, relates more to the tourism angle of my research. I'm very interested in whether post-COVID we'll see any changes to the international marketing of Japan as a destination. As I said, up until now, um, the Japanese tourism bodies have been very focused on perpetuating this idea of these two images of Japan. They perpetuate the traditional Japan and the futuristic high-tech Japan. And they showcase these two very definite versions of Japan. And what I'm interested in is when tourism effectively restarts, will we continue to see these same binary representations? Or will this be an opportunity for new depictions and new um, understandings of Japan? So that's what I'm interested in. Definitely. I think that there's been a large increase in interest recently in, in the UK in uh, Japanese crafts and traditional wares and tools and that sort of thing. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if that becomes more of a common perception, a, a rush to the countryside, the inaka in the future. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, Great. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining me on the show today, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's great to be along. I'm a fan of the podcast, so... It's strange being a guest. <laughs> you can find a link to Chris's research profile in the description below. Next week, we will be joined by Dr. Mark Hudson, archaeologist in the interdisciplinary Eurasia Three Angle Research Group at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History, to discuss Bronze Age globalization. Mark's research of Jomon era Japan has indicated that socio-cultural exchange occurs between the Japanese archipelago and mainland Eurasia, followed by a period of re-Jomanization, where external cultures were rejected in return to the local. I'll be asking Mark what prehistoric globalization looked like and how it relates to our contemporary understanding of the process today. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>